I'm Bishop Sherman Young. Each week, the Word Break podcast answers questions about God, faith, and other spiritual issues. Here is this week's message. And so we've talked about increase, and we've talked about what we need to be about and how God is going to better us and bless us. It is so much like God to make a way for us in advance. I'm amazed at how God does things, you know. He would be a monster if God gave you appetite, if there was no such thing as food. What if God had created thirst? and had not created water. So your very desire for something means that it must exist. Or else there wouldn't be the desire for it. You know what the Bible said? God gives us the desires of our hearts. We think that means that God gives us what we want. When really there's another way to read that. That it is God that gives us the desire. The desires that are in our hearts were put there by God. So whatever you desire, it must mean it's for you. So God gives us the desire of our heart. You know, you can't be successful unless you desire success. You can't have a fruitful life unless you desire to be prosperous. So the very fact that you desire it indicates that there is something out there that God has just for you. Hunt your neighbor, tell him, I'm going to get mine too. Praise God. I know I'm going to get it because I have the desire for it. And me having the desire really means that there is something that God has for me. And so I'm very excited about that. And so our labor this week has been to really create an even greater hunger in you an even greater hunger for the things that God already has for you we twist up scripture so much until I get disturbed about it and one popular scripture we twist eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has and preachers quote that but they don't go to the next verse the very next verse says but it has been revealed See, we want to think that God is so mysterious that you're not supposed to know what he wants to do for you. That's dumb. God not only wants you to know, but once you know, he knows you'll pursue it. So listen, what God has in store for you has been revealed if you open your spiritual eyes, study the word of God, and look for it. It's already there. And so God doesn't want you going through life as a believer willy-nilly or helter-skelter or just going along not knowing what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. He has really given you everything. Jesus said to his apostles, I have given you everything that my father gave me to give to you. I've hidden nothing from you. Now listen to me carefully. There are no secrets in what God wants to do for you. It's all in the word of God. The problem is you don't think you qualify. And so you'll see what he's done for others and you'll be impressed. But it doesn't impress you enough to convince you that if they received, you can receive. When you deal with God and receiving from God, it is all about what I believe. 
The only way to receive is to believe. It is not by what you achieve, by what you believe. It is what you believe. Everybody say, what I believe. And faith comes from hearing the word of God. So as you hear the word of God and you receive that word, then you begin to believe God for it and he does wonderful things. So over these three days, uh, four days really, we've talked to you about the importance of understanding God's program of moving you into a place of increase. And we've talked about the very elementary bit of tithing, 10% of whatever comes into your life God says is mine and I want you to bring that to me and present it in a public worship service and so listen there is the tenth that is there that already is God that is step one everybody say step one once we go past that the Bible said we've robbed God twofold in tithe and offering so even though I bring the tenth I'm still not off the hook and I'm still not banished from the curse now according to what we read last night a tithe brings a blessing it does not bring continual blessing there is a blessing for a tithe but then the bible says and offerings plural you've robbed me in tithes and offerings so we have to search the word of god and find other opportunities where we can support the kingdom of god we're bringing our monies and bringing our time and bringing ourselves, bringing our families, all of that's important. And when it comes to material increase, the Bible taught us last night in Proverbs that we honor the Lord with our material substances and with the first fruit of our increase. And he would fill our storage places and overflow whatever we're doing to produce for ourselves. So your storages by now should be full or filling up. And whatever you're doing on a daily basis should be prospering. You should be able to live off of overflow. If after several years as a Christian you're living from hand to mouth, there's something in the process that you're not doing. There's something that you're not doing. Uh, you could be tithing, but remember that's only a part of it. And it's step one. Then there is offering. And then we looked last night at something that a lot of people have never considered. There is first fruit of the increase. Yeah. That once the seed that I sow an offering begins to come up, then there is the increase. There is the harvest that comes back to me. And so once I start receiving harvest, I must know how to take that increase and find the seed in it and return it to God. So that it can grow and produce harvest. And there is a continuing cycle. There's something that God definitely wants to do in every life. And in doing that in every life, it is God's desire that you are self-sufficient. He doesn't want you living off of the government. Maybe there's some sickness or some problem that's made that uh, your life. And you, you're caught up in something or some disability. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that could do for themselves and people that God has given you health and strength. The truth of the matter is that whatever your talent or skill or gift is, that's where your money is. And some of you are working on jobs now you absolutely hate to go to because you don't have any real gift or talent or skill in that. When you know you found yourself is when you love your job. And when you really would do it for free and you're just glad that they do pay you. 
I have people that pay me for ministering. The truth is, I love to minister so much until I would do it for free. And so I love it. I love what I do. I love preaching. I love teaching. I love going to church. I love uh, promoting the kingdom of God. I love digging in the word of God. I love it. I think it's cool that they want to pay me for doing that. Now, if you're working in a place and you don't love it, it could mean that that place is really not a part of your purpose for being in the earth. You have to locate your purpose and stop selling yourself cheap just for the paycheck. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? Now, don't go to work and quit tomorrow because I said that. You may have to work your way out of that job into something else. But understand something, we were created for a purpose. And it all goes by seed. Somebody says seed. There's always multiplication. God made Adam and then from Adam comes Eve. Isn't it interesting that man multiplied when God made woman? God didn't go back to the dust. He went to that which he started with. Adam was original seed. And so if there's going to be another homo sapien, that homo sapien must be multiplied from the original seed. I wish somebody understood me. See, if you were God, you made Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. You would have went back to the dust and made woman. God didn't do that. He went in the original seed and doubled the population of the earth. And made woman, that's man with the womb womb man now if there are going to be any other human beings man and woman must make that happen so God makes Adam and from Adam comes Eve and then it begins to multiply say multiply and from Eve comes other children starts with the seed once that seed starts it continues to multiply continues to multiply and so it's important that we understand that God has given you something to start with. And because he's given you something to start with, that we need to operate in God in what he's given us to start with. And that he believes in increase. Anything that's not multiplying, anything that's not increasing, it's not of God. Everything that God made continues to expand. It continues to stretch. It continues to increase. Your life ought to be a progressive thing. You shouldn't be in the same place now that you was two years ago. Your finances shouldn't be in the same mess they were in three years ago. If they are, don't panic. It just means there's something you're not doing that you need to be doing. Can anybody follow what I'm saying? Never settle for standing still. Anybody can be average. So why waste the only life you'll get being like everybody else? You are unique. You are different. You are special. You are gifted. You have something to offer. God created you with something to offer, to contribute. And so our material rendering has something to do with that, and we need to understand that. 
Now, tonight I'm going to talk about that, but I'm also going to include something else I think is very important. I think we need to understand the great roundup and what God is doing and why we're moving in the way we're moving and what our maturity in ministry should be about. I'm going to read something tonight from the book of Revelation. Revelation. Now, since stewardship is not all about money, I'm going to read something from Revelation that has to do with the times in which we live and certain things that I believe Satan is doing against the church to keep the church from walking in her maturity. It is important that the church mature. And that's why we have Merediths and other men of that caliber to locate what God has given to you and to help you develop that and pull that out of you. But of course, Satan has an agenda, and his agenda has to do with keeping the church in poverty and keeping the church in a certain place in her maturity. If the devil can ever keep you from growing up, if he can ever keep you from being all that you ought to be, then he wins what he's trying to do against the kingdom of God. Now, he cannot overthrow the kingdom of God. He knows that. He knows he is defeated. So he has pledged himself to keeping you from the good things of God. Now, I'm going to read something in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. And I'm going to really talk to you tonight about your spiritual growth, your spirituality, your maturity, and what Satan is doing to keep us from being all that we should be. Revelation chapter 16, I'm going to read something beginning at verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come up out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet they were spirits of devils working miracles which go forth upon the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God almighty behold I come as a thief blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garment lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into the place which is called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Verse 17. And thus from the throne saying it is done. I think I'll stop there. Go back to verse 12. The sixth angel. Say the sixth angel. Yes the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Hmm. And the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come up out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Verse 16. He gathered them together into the place Call Armageddon. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the midair. And there was a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Now I'm going to talk tonight about these three unclean spirits. 
like frogs. A couple of things I need to say at the outset when we get to the book of Revelation is that I understand there are many various interpretations on the book of Revelation. Out of all of the books of the Bible, this is perhaps the one that is interpreted in more different ways than any other book. There are some that believe that everything in the book of Revelation is historical, meaning that everything in it has already happened. There are others that believe that chapters 1 through 3 have happened and chapters 4 through 22 are yet to happen. And then there are some others that teach that all of it is in the future and is futuristic and all of it is yet to happen. I want you to know that I understand that. I also need you to understand that when we get to Revelation that I know that with all of the varied interpretations that there are some people, as I have had to do, that have had to go back and revisit their theology on Revelation. Because coming into the 21st century, it left a lot of prophets looking like false prognosticators. It left a lot of preachers looking bad because for years they had declared, according to the way they studied Revelation, that we would be raptured by the year 2000. And so when 2000 came in and went out and we were still here, it left a lot of prophets in a pickle. I want you to know that I understand that. That there are people that, and preachers and teachers that have taken revelation and they have used it with private interpretation. And they have used it to frighten people and to scare people by focusing in on the bad or the evil or the antichrist principles in the book. And they've caused people to not really look at it as objectively as they should look at it. Now, when you read Revelation, I want you to know that I know that I understand that Revelation is a book of mysteries. Yeah. And that it was written in a certain mysterious code language that only certain people of that day could understand. Right, right. That John, who took this dictation down, was put on the Isle of Patmos. You remember that. And that being exiled to that isle for preaching the word of God. That John was left on an island to die. And presumably he was left alone, only to discover that he was not alone. There was another on the island with him, another with a capital A. And the Bible said that John heard the voice of Jesus on that island. And when he turned to see his face, it shocked him so until he fell to Jesus' feet as dead. And Jesus was there with his hair like lambs wool, remember that, and the golden girdle about a long white garment. His feet looked as if they were polished brass. His voice was the sound of a thousand waterfalls. And he called John by his name, stood him on his feet, and told him to write seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. And John wrote the letter using a code language because the people receiving the book uh, were subject people under governmental authority and John didn't want the captors to understand what he was writing so he used certain biblical codes that only students of the word would understand I want you to know that I know that so when you read Revelation you'll see the recurrence of certain numbers and colors and symbols that are symbolic and are not to be taken literally but figuratively in many cases. For example, in Revelation you keep seeing the number three. 
Well, to people of the word, three is the number for the spirit world. It represents the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. And the unholy trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. The number four is an earth number because you've got the four winds and the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. The number five in the Bible is the number for ministry. Because the Bible said that he himself gave some to the church to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The number six in the Bible is the number for man. Because man was created on the sixth day. And then six is the number for labor because not only man but the beasts of burden, the cattle and the oxen were created on the sixth day. So the number six is the number for man and man's labor. In the Bible, for example, when he talks of the Antichrist and he said the number of his name will be 666, he's not lettering the alphabets of his name. As people a generation ago said Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because he had three alpha, uh, six alphabets in each name, Ronald Wilson Reagan. And so people said he must be the Antichrist because the way he's cutting out and cutting off and cutting up. But you understand he's not lettering alphabets. Three is spiritual. Six is human. It means the Antichrist will be a human being with incredible spiritual power. The number seven in the Bible is the number for perfection because the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for seven by definition means to be perfect, to be full, to be satisfied, to be complete, to have enough. Seven is the number for God. So you see seven hovering around everything that God does. There are seven days in the week in the beginning of the Bible. Anybody read the Bible? When Joseph interprets the king's dream, he said there'll be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. When Naaman is to be healed, the Bible said Elisha sent him out to the Jordan to dip seven times in the river. And his flesh would, watch this, become the flesh of a little child. Meaning because he dipped seven times, he completed, completed, completed a life cycle. When he comes up after the seventh time, he's got brand new baby skin. When Samson gets a haircut in the wrong barbershop, Delilah cuts seven locks of hair from his head. And he becomes as weak as any other man. Jesus in securing your redemption spoke seven statements from the cross before he gave up the ghost and went to the tomb and then rose that Sunday morning. Revelation is full of seven, seven letters, seven candlesticks, seven new things, seven times the name Jesus appears, seven times the name Jesus Christ appears. Whenever you see seven, it says completion. John knew that. You're full of sevens. Got seven parts to your body. The right arm, the left arm, the right leg, the left leg, the head, the neck, and the trunk. There's seven holes in your head. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and one mouth. There's seven parts to your voice. Bass, baritone, tenor, alto, counteralto, mezzo-soprano, and soprano. Around seven months old, a baby starts cutting teeth. Around seven years old, the teeth start falling out. There are seven questions that govern all situations. Who, what, when, how, where, why, and with what assistance. So seven is a perfecting number. Say perfecting. That's why seven is the number for God. 
Now notice six is the number for man, seven is the number for God. Six is short of seven, meaning man is always short of God. No matter how smart you think you are, no matter how much money you think you have, no matter how trained and talented you are, your arms are too short to box with God. Man needs God because man is a six. That's why the first miracle Jesus performed, he turned water into wine. You remember that? But remember there were six water pots. And he told them, fill them up to the brim. That represents human extremity. Fill it up to the brim, six pots, with all that they can stand and it's still water. When Jesus joins himself to the six, the water becomes wine. Because he becomes the seventh element. Now listen, he's not a water pot. He is a fountain of living water. So when Jesus aligns himself with six and six becomes seven, your water becomes wine. So when you've done all you can do and tried all you can try and, and you've worked all you can work, just invite the Lord in. Because once he gets with you, whatever you've done, he will take it and transition it. Now I want you to know I understand that about Revelation. I also want you to know that he used colors. Say colors. You remember when the four horses ride in Revelation? Remember four is an earth number. So we're talking about something that's going to happen worldwide. But then there are no horses. It's the colors that are important. When the white horse rides, white is the symbol of peace. There's no horse. It's white. There will be peace. Four horses all over the earth. After the white horse comes the red horse. There's no horse. Red is the color of warfare. So after the white period, the peace period, will come war all over the earth. Then after the red horse rides the black horse. Black is for starvation. Because whenever there's world war, there's food rationing all over the earth. And then the pale horse rides, and pale is the color of death. I need you to know that I understand that. The reason I need you to know that is because what, I, what I've read to you tonight has been interpreted by so many as something that is set to happen at a specific time. Now what you need to understand about Revelation as well is this. This is not the revelation of John. Right. Now maybe on the, in your Bible, uh, on, on chapter 1, it has up there the revelation of St. John the Divine. This is not John's revelation. The book of Revelation is not about John and it's not about the Antichrist. It amazes me that every time somebody like Sodom Insane, I mean Hussein, or, or, or Ben Laden does something in the Middle East, that everybody wants to go to a Revelation Bible class. Revelation is not about people in the Middle East. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is to help you understand Jesus and what his activities are as we go along in life. Now when you get here to what we read tonight, I want to tell you this now. I've had to actually go back and look at what I first thought about this years ago. Because listen, what we read tonight says that when you get towards the battle of Armageddon, there's going to be a release. Of spirits, nasty spirits. 
And I need you to understand that I believe that that is for something that's going to happen before Armageddon. But here's what I also understand is that whenever you have a prophetic word of this magnitude, you will see types and shadows of the fulfillment of that prophecy long before that prophecy comes to fruition. For example, I believe there will be an antichrist. But the Bible has already said the spirit of antichrist is already in the world. Anything that is against the lordship of Jesus Christ is antichrist. And we live in a time when people strongly purport and promote their different religions. Jesus said, in the last day, they will use my name to deceive people. So you've got the Latter-day Saints, Church of Jesus Christ, deception. Jehovah's Witnesses, deception. They use the name of God in order to craftily and cleverly deceive people. And you have cults and groups all over the world that use the name of Jesus in order to draw people to them and they are antichrist. You have even some in the Muslim community, even people like Farrakhan that says, I'm a Christian Muslim. That's deception. There is no room for both to be Lord. deception so listen as we get to this I want you to understand that although these spirits I believe will be released in full strength they are already being released what makes me say that look at what it says here in verse number 12 the sixth angel poured out his vial but then look at seven at verse 17 Verse number, verse number 12 says the sixth angel. Verse number 17 says the seventh angel. That between the pouring out of the sixth and the seventh, in between six and seven was a release. Everybody say in between six and seven was a release. Well, you do understand that when we came into the 21st century, we stepped into the seventh millennium. All right, all right. And seven is the number for completion. Yeah. Perfection, maturity. You know, there were 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years from Jesus to us. Two plus two plus two is six. So there have been 6,000 years from Adam to us. And when we stepped over in the 21st century, we not only stepped into a new year and a new decade and a new century, but a new millennium. You're not feeling me yet. Come on. We stepped over into a whole new millennium. The seventh millennium since, now I hear somebody thinking, so you saying Adam wasn't but 6,000 years ago. What, what about these dinosaurs they're finding? And said they're millions of years old. I didn't say the earth was 6,000 years old. We don't know how old the earth is. And God did tell Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So apparently there was something here before Adam. But according to what we can catalog and chronicle, there were 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. 
2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years from Jesus to us, that's 6,000 years. And the 21st century stepped us over into the seventh millennium. The 7,000 year count. And whenever six is becoming seven, there is always a struggle. Whenever you're trying in your life to move to maturity, to to a higher degree of stewardship and faithfulness, there will always be a struggle. Whenever you make up in your mind to be the kind of believer that God would be pleased with, whenever you determine you're going to mature, you're going to perfect this thing, I'm going to start walking the way God wants me to walk and giving the way God wants me to give and tithing the way God wants me to tithe. You will encounter a struggle. Out of all the times in Revelation when Satan moves, you notice he does not move until six is becoming seven. There's a struggle. Everybody say struggle. And the Bible tells us this. It said that when the sixth angel poured out his vial, that's what I need you to understand, that whenever six is become, whenever maturity, look at the end of verse 17. That's how we know this is perfection. It said that was a sound from heaven saying, it is done. Why? Because things are always done in the seventh dimension. Your week is always over on the seventh day. It's always done in the seventh dimension. Whenever there's seven, there is an end. And then eight is the number of new beginnings. So Satan does not want whatever's going on to be perfected. And you know what the Bible said he did here? And I'm I'm hurrying with this. Said he released three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, I need to tell you before I go any further, I don't like frogs. I love seafood. I don't like frog legs. I don't really see why frog legs are included with seafood. I don't like frogs. You know, there's there's nothing attractive about a frog. And when you, need, when you read the word, you need to understand that whenever the word compares something, look, three unclean spirits like frogs. Didn't say three frogs, but that these spirits are like frogs. You know, in Psalm 1, when it said, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Didn't say that you would be a tree, but you're like a tree planted at the river. So you're like, not as frogs, but like frogs. And I'm here to tell you, I, I, don't, I don't care for frogs. Basically because I understand something about frogs and these spirits. When it says these spirits are like frogs, it means they, you know frogs, you know, they're, they're slimy and slick. You know, the people we're going to talk about tonight that have these spirits, they're slick, you can't catch them. They do what they do in church and they slip away before you know who did it. Say they're slippery. Say they're slippery. Yeah, they're slippery. They slip away from you. I don't like frogs. You know a frog doesn't have a neck. He can't turn his head. Say he can't turn his head. He can't repent. 
repent means to turn. He can't turn. The people that have these spirits that try to keep your church immature, they're, they're dedicated to that. They're committed to that. You're trying to pray with them and pray over them, hoping they'll change. They can't change. See, in church, you have to not only ask God to help you learn how to receive new people. You have to ask God to help you to learn how to release some people. People don't change because you pray for them. They're like frogs. I don't, I don't like frogs. I, you, you know when frogs come out? Yeah, at night. Freaks come out at night. At night. You know, come on, you feel me. You know, you, you, know, you know when frogs come out? When the water gets low. You know, if you ever lived on a lake or a pond where there are frogs, when the water gets low, that's where they come out. And in the, in the church, water is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is symbolized by a rock, like the rock of Gibraltar. I mean, he's there. He's going to stay there. But the Holy Ghost is not a rock. The Holy Ghost is compared to water. And water has a tendency to evaporate. That's why you get filled with the Holy Ghost again and again and again and again. That's why you don't need to stay away from church. You need a fresh filling as often as you can get one. Because the mess on your job will cause that Holy Ghost you got last night to evaporate before tonight. Anybody know what I'm talking about? People's attitudes, the way people treat you, the way people talk, the way people harass you, the way people carry on. All that shouting you did last night can evaporate the next day. You see? And sometimes in church, the water gets low. We didn't shout this week like we did last week. And as soon as the water gets low around church, you see the frogs pop their heads up. Something must be wrong. Something going on. He ain't preaching right. He and his wife must be going through something. He ain't ain't carrying on right. The service ain't right. The choir's not right. Something's wrong. Tonight, we need to expose these frogs. Because they're here. You looked at your neighbor lately? Hey, you know when a frog makes that sound? Ribbit. Ribbit. You know that's a mating call. He's not like a bird. He's not singing. He's looking for a mate. And people that have this spirit, whenever they talk, when they talk to you, they're trying to check you out to see if you feel the same way about things around here as they do. I mean, sometimes you can't leave church and get to your car before a frog comes up and try to mate with you. Sunday night, telephone ring. It's a frog. Ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. 
I don't like what went on today. Did, did you hear that announcement they made? Who authorized them to do that? Who are all these new folk coming up in here? We don't know them. They've just taken over our church. That's a mating call. Listen, I'll tell you what, we better identify these frogs. You want to know who they are? I'm going to tell you who they are. Wait, before I tell you who they are, I think I need to tell you how you get to be one. Yep. Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1? Psalm 1 verse 1. Psalm 1 verse 1. You remember that. Blessed is the man. Walking not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of the scorn. But wait a minute. Blessed is the man that what? Walk, walk, walketh not. You see, when you come into the Lord, you're supposed to be walking. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk. We walk. Walk, not be weary. We walk. Walk and not faint. We walk. Say we walk. You see, it's supposed to be a progressive thing. You come into the goodness of the Lord. You come into this church. You get, you get impressed with the ministry of the house. You start walking. So you walk to Bible class. You walk to the prayer meetings. You walk to the revival. You walk to church school. You walk to worship service. You're walking. You're enjoying your new church. You're enjoying the ministry. You're walking. Until you hear, what does the next clause say? The counsel of the ungodly. You start hearing things. And then what does the next clause say? Nor standeth. You stop walking and now you're standing. See, when you first came into the church, you were walking. You were enjoying yourself. You were flowing and floating along until somebody called you. You were serving. You were sharing. You were tithing. You were giving every time the church door was unlocked. You were here until you heard some ungodly talk. You ever, you ever seen a new member and an old member sitting next to each other in church? Old member lean over and tell new member, now, nah, you can't trust everybody up in here. You just kind of hang with me. Just stay with me and I... I'll show you around. So they're sitting together and the choir sings and somebody comes up and leads a solo. And the new member said, oh, I enjoyed that. Oh, you don't know him like I do. So that's what I've been trying to tell you. Ain't nothing to that. Nothing but a show. to put somebody up to make a testimony. They give their testimony and go back and sit down and the new member said, praise God, that ministered to me. And the old member hunts up and said, mm -mm -mm -mm, they've been married three times. <laughs> the pastor gets through preaching and the new member says, oh, glory to God. He sure did preach to me. Hunter said, oh, you just hang around a while. You'll get to know him better. So the stewardship of the new person is dampened 
by a bitter spirit and ungodly counsel. So, you stop walking and start standing. Nor standeth in the way of sinner. You stand like a sinner stand. That word stand right there actually means to take a stand. Where do you stand? Who do you stand with? You stand with the pastor? You stand with the deacon? Who do you stand with? I want to know who you stand I think before we meet tonight, we need to know where everybody stands. Where do you stand? We're just checking around. Make sure we're together before we go in here because when we come out, we don't want to say what happened in the meeting because we're going to stand together. And then if you stand long enough, you're going to get tired. And what does the next cause say? Nor sit in the seat of Judgment. Scornful is judgment. It's criticizing everything. You were walking till you heard some ungodly counsel. Once you heard the ungodly counsel, you stop and start looking around at everybody and judging everybody. Then you start sitting in criticism on everything up in here you don't like. Nobody right. The preacher not right. The choir not right. Nope. Let you tell it nobody right. Hey, hey. Even a clock that stopped working is right twice a day. There's no such thing as you're the only one right in here and everybody else is wrong. And that's where the frog-like spirit comes from. It's a person that was walking. They were faithful. They were flowing. They were obedient. They heard something and it stopped them in their tracks. They sit in judgment of everything. And now that frog leaks out of their mouth. You, you want to know who they are? Are you sure? All right, let's identify them. Go to the book of Jude. That's right in front of Revelation. Jude. Last book, right in front of Revelation. No chapters, just verses. It's a real short book. It's the porch to Revelation. You won't really get Revelation if you don't stop through Jude. Because Jude sets up the end time events that are presented in Revelation. It really is an appetizer to the entrees of Revelation. It's the salad to the meal. Jude talks about what will happen and the attitudes of people in our time. You got the book of Jude? Just some verses. Let's just start around. We can, we can almost start around here anywhere. We can, we can start around uh, verse, number, verse number five. I will therefore put you in remembrance that though you once knew this, how that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed them that believed not and that the angels which kept not their first state left their own habitation and had reserved and everlasting chains and darkness unto the day of judgment and to the great day even Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of them. See, he's sending it up, he's sending it up. But then when he gets to verse number eight, the very next verse, he said, likewise, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil. Of what? Now, the attitude of the people in the last day, defile the flesh. When you talk about frog-like people, they defile the flesh. In other words, they just live any kind of way. They despise dominion. They don't want nobody. They don't want the pastor. They don't want nobody. 
having any kind of authority in their life. And they speak evil of people they should be respecting. Verse 9 said, but even Michael, the archangel, when he argued with Moses, with, with the devil over the body of Moses, even Michael didn't bring against the devil a railing accusation. But all Michael said to the devil was, the Lord rebuke you. But look at verse 10. These people speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they, what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. Verse 11, here they are, woe unto them. Here they are, all three of them. For they have gone in the way of Cain. And run greedily after the arrow of Balaam for reward. And perish with the gain saying of Korah, look up at me. What Jude is saying is that in those days, in these days, in these times, there are three spirits that have gathered and are moving around and operating around in the church. One, the first he mentions, is the spirit of Cain. You remember Cain. Cain was a brother killer. And he killed his brother over how to worship God. Cain had his own idea of worship. His brother Abel had a different idea and God had respect for Abel, his offering and his worship. But he did not respect Cain and Cain therefore killed him. It's a spirit in people that will kill their brothers and sisters because their brothers and sisters have a better praise than they do. It criticizes the way people shout, the way they dance, the way somebody sang, the way the choir operates together, the way somebody preaches. It's a killing spirit. You're sitting up in church, somebody does something for the Lord, and rather than you celebrate with them, you criticize them. That is the spirit of Cain. See, Cain, he could have been just as valuable as Abel was. But the Bible said that he couldn't do it. And, the, and God told him, if you're not careful, he said, if you do not well, sin lies at the door. You know what that really means? If you don't straighten your attitude, you're going to walk right out and do something wrong. And that if you have an attitude when people are ministering and singing, when people are leading you in worship, you're supposed to allow them to lead you into the presence of God. But you don't sit up and criticize them because you can't get a chance to lead the worship. Now come on, we got to walk through a little tight area right up in here. But the one thing that destroys us is jealousy. We just can't stand to see anybody doing anything that we think we can do better. The Bible said we ought to prefer one another and promote one another. We ought to recommend one another. You ought to be happy to see somebody else in the microphone. But we live in a day and time where if one person leads a song twice, then other people in the choir get jealous. I wish I could get a little more energy coming back this way. We got preachers in church that get jealous because they didn't get to preach. Somebody else in the church has preached three times since they preached last time. And they want to quit and go to another church because they say, he's holding me back. He won't let me preach. Have you ever thought there's a good reason why he won't let you preach? 
I wish somebody understood me. Listen, hear this, hear this. When it's time to preach, we don't do that by multiple choice. We don't do that by any, meeny, miny, mo. It was your time last time, so it's your time this time. We're looking for somebody with the word from God. And I'm sorry, baby, your testimony is not preaching. You telling us how many men you used to go with at one time. That ain't preaching. I wish I could get some help up in here. So he's, he's holding me back. He, he won't let me preach. Listen, I, 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 I really don't mean no harm, but I want you to know, whenever you get a chance to preach, that's a precious privilege. And the only reason you got somebody to preach to at all is it's a captive audience. If they knew you were going to preach that day, they wouldn't have even showed up. And some of them would walk out, but they don't want to hear the pastor's mouth next week. Now, can I just tell the truth? The truth is, nobody is calling the church office every day trying to find out when the next time you up to preach. You get a chance to preach. That's a privilege. And when you get up to preach, you can't preach what you want. You can preach on the love of God. You can preach on the blood, the cross. You can preach salvation. You can preach the Holy Ghost, the gifts of the Spirit. But you can't preach correction. These aren't your sheep. You don't stand up here and tell people how to live or what to stop doing. They're not your sheep. You're out of order when you preach correction in somebody else's house. It's not your sheep. You don't come over to my house and discipline my children. I wish I could get somebody to pray with me. You can't preach what you want just because you got the microphone. I, I could say I, I could lead worship if they let me. Well, maybe if you come up here and scrub a few toilets once or twice a week, we find out you do have a gift. Because the truth is, we don't need you to preach. We got a preacher. What we need is somebody to come up here and clean up and cut grass and wash the van and work with the children. We need volunteers. We need you to do the work of ministry. But a cane-killing spirit, a, a, a cane-like spirit will kill your brother because your brother has more favor than you do. Everybody wants the favor of God, but I'm here to tell you, most of us can't handle it. Because once the Lord starts blessing you, people will start cursing you. You stand up and testify what God has done in your life. You see them shake their heads and say, uh-uh, God, that, that sugar daddy she got, that's who gave her that car. Don't look at me in that tone of voice.
The more favor that's on you, the more jealousy you encounter. There are kings out there that want to kill you. Now that's the first spirit. The second one said the second spirit like for it, it's gone after the era of Balaam. You remember Balaam? Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament that had an invitation to preach in a place that God didn't want him to go. But the check was good. They promised him a certain amount of money. And he prayed and he asked God about going. And God said, no, I don't want you to go down there. And Balaam said, but the check. Yeah, I'm going to get paid. And the spirit of Balaam represents the spirit that's in people that don't want to do anything around the church unless they get paid. Can we walk through this? We've come into a day where people don't want to do anything unless there's a check attached to it. We want you to serve in the church. Well, how much does it pay? We want you to lead worship. How much does it pay? We want you to play the drums. How much does it pay? Now understand, there's nothing wrong with paying musicians, but understand, there is something wrong when musicians won't play unless they get paid. Oh, you don't like what I'm saying. But the truth is that whatever ministry gift you have, there is no pay that is adequate enough to cover what God has blessed you to do. It's all right for you to get paid, but it is wrong for you to say, well, I ain't going to do it because they ain't going to pay me. A part of your stewardship in this house is whatever you can do, you should be doing it at least once a month for your church. If you're a registered nurse, there ought to be at least one day a month that you volunteer to come up to the church and help look at people or, or, or take vital signs or take blood pressure of people that can't afford to go anywhere to get it done. If you're a school teacher, or retired teacher, at least one day a month, you ought to give voluntarily yourself to the ministry to help people with their homework, children that are struggling in school to get a diploma at least one day a month. If you can work with computers, with websites, you ought to at least be willing to help the church open this computer lab and work with children in the neighborhood. Not so they'll come to the church, but because they need the education. What are you giving to the church? What is your contribution to the ministry that you will give and not worry about a paycheck? Balaam, Balaam had to go preach because there was some money involved. The Bible said he was riding along on his ass trying to go and preach. It says his ass looked ahead and saw something that he didn't see. God put an angel in the room. Man's ass saw something he couldn't see. 
I'll get a witness in here after a while. But he was so blind for the box that he could not see the kingdom. The truth is, y'all, when you unite with a ministry, you bring everything that belongs to you to that ministry. Your car actually becomes the ministry's car. So if we need you to run down the street and pick up somebody for church, you don't understand what I'm saying. Your bank account actually becomes the ministry's bank account. So when we get ready to build a new building and we say we need everybody who can to bring a thousand dollars, that means go get the thousand dollars. When I'm joined to a ministry, I submit all that I, what did you bring? You? There's not anything that I have that my ministry does not have. They can ride in my car. My cars are not so special that I can't pick up somebody in the project that needs a ride to the church. I wish I could get somebody to understand me. We're supposed to have a giving attitude.